Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Backblaze Online Backup. It's a simple way to back up all your movies, photos, music, videos, and all of the data just for $5 a month. It's simple, and you can access all your data online from wherever you are. Try it absolutely free by going to backblaze.com slash cpc. That's B-A-C-K-B-L-A-Z-E dot com slash cpc. If you need me to smell cpc, man, you're in trouble. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, Comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there no questions asked Uh, i've heard stories about all those things Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups i maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups the nerdologues is group therapy meets toastmasters i know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm supportive environment by other nerds just like me and what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. <laughs> Hey everybody, I'm Eric Arnault and this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast. We've got another year-end compilation app for you today, but first I wanted to give a big thank you to everybody who came out to the Beat Kitchen for our final live show of the year last night. It was a total blast and full of excellent stories and songs. Uh, You'll be able to hear those pieces starting on Monday, January 1st, and I think you'll love them. But first, in the midst of best of season... I thought it would be a mistake not to commemorate one of the coolest things this show did this year, which is go on tour. Uh, a couple pieces from the tour made it onto the regular best ofs, but this was such an epic journey for myself especially that I wanted to make sure it got its own due. So that's what you're about to hear. So first, a little background. Uh, this has all been documented extensively on this podcast, but in case you're new and this is your first episode, because maybe it is, uh, back in May, I quit my job. And I had a little bit of time before the next one started, so I decided to do something I'd always dreamt of and took this show on the road. So for two weeks in early May, it was just me, my dog, my guitar, and a microphone going around the western United States collecting stories. And man, did we get some good stories. So to help me launch on the tour emotionally and financially, that's important, uh, we threw a kickoff party at the Cards Against Humanity Theater, and the first couple pieces you're about to hear come from that. First up, you get a song from myself and Dwight Hassler featuring the wonderful Chris Blake on lead vocals, and then you get a heck of a story by master orator Andrew Bentley. It's worth noting that Chris and Andrew are the two halves of the comedy duo Rabbit Rabbit, who I once went on a road trip to Toronto with. Uh, They're awesome guys, and I was so stoked to have them to help send me off. So let's begin with what was kind of my road anthem, a song by Japan Droids called Near to the Wild Heart of Life. (laughs) 
this is absolutely like start the car, play the song, and go. Yeah, like it, if I'm listening to this song and I'm not driving 80 miles an hour, it makes me angry. <laughs> so uh, I'll kick this on as soon as I get out of Chicago proper tomorrow. But uh, this is by Japan Droids. This is called Near to the Wild Heart of Life. One, two, three, four.
love playing with Chris. Uh, coming next to the stage, we have the other half of Rabbit Rabbit, former Nerdalogs member, uh, and also a wonderful storyteller and friend, Mr. Andrew Bentley! Hello, I'm Andrew Bentley. Gather ye round, and I'll spin you a tale of the final journey of the Flying V. The Flying V was a red Volvo purchased in the early 90s and manufactured sometime before cars were actually invented. <laughs> she was an aged vessel, but sturdy, and yes, I say she, no other gender would do, for she was mistress and mother both to such a rabble of awkward, gopping virgin men and sad boys that ne'er the world has seen their like again. Hearty lads we were and true, ripe for all manner of gamble and jape, transmuting with reckless alchemy our sexual frustration into fire, garbage, and regurgitated puddles of old granddad. Many the curbside was christened with vomit from the vantage of her passenger door. Many the parking lot tattooed with melted rubber. Her captain was a stalwart chap named Christopher Rorys, a name which has graced my stories before, usually in concord with some act of keen and abominable mischief. <laughs> Our chariot in these triumphs was rarely other than the flying V. We were graduated high school by the time the V entered our lives. Chris had not procured his driver's license until the age of 19, because he couldn't be bothered to take the practical exam or, if I'm being entirely honest, to learn how to drive. <laughs> On his 19th birthday, he had simply strolled down to the DMV, answered a few questions about stoplights and three-point turns, and walked away with permission from the state of Virginia to hurl 3,000 pounds of rusted metal down her highways as fast as the Vexum laws of physics would permit. <laughs> I was but a month or so into college when the V made her first desperate plummet down I-95 to Christopher Newport University and fetched up on the shores of my dorm. Now, the unorthodox way in which Chris had outweighed the state for his license was well known to me, but I had no car and neither did my friends. Well, Rob had one, but he was rarely sober enough to find it, leaving aside operation. <laughs> Worse yet, CNU was a dry campus. If we wanted to drink in circumstances somewhat louder or cheerier than Anne Frank's bat mitzvah, we had two choices. One, be much cooler than we actually were, or two, travel 20 miles up the road to William & Mary, where either the students were less cool or we were granted enough exotic outsider charm that our coolness would only be undercut by the time it was too late to kick us out. Uh, my friend John was pledging a frat there, and the parties were plentiful. Well, technically, John was pledging the shadow of a frat. Uh, their particular chapter had been disowned after the brothers threw a couch out a window and it landed on a girl's face. Uh, their charter had been revoked, while the victim had suffered a broken nose and continued to date one of the brothers and make frequent appearances at their parties, like the ghost of Banquo in a tube top and Uggs. <laughs> this, this was our Valhalla. And the Rainbow Bridge was 20 miles of forested highway traversable by no public transportation. And so, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man was our chauffeur. And we lavished our cyclops with fervent love. <laughs> Throughout my freshman year, the V would appear on our campus with regularity, as red and as pregnant with the promise of celebration as the Kool-Aid man himself. <laughs> With a proverbial, oh yeah, Chris would hurtle into the parking lot, burst through the wall of our tedium, and we would prostrate ourselves before him and sup from his prodigal bounty. <laughs> this continued through the ice-slick roads of winter and the flooding rains of spring. Practice did not make perfect. At least, not as most motorists would regard it, or pedestrians, or rhinoceri. Chris did not become a better driver in the normal sense of learning to obey the rules of the road. Uh, he became an expert at violating them. It's been said that Black Sabbath guitarist Tony Iommi was such a unique guitarist because, not in spite of, his maimed hands. The Flying V was Chris's guitar. 
He knew her timing to an absolute fault. During breaks from school, back in our even more boring suburb, we would enlist the V in fun runs. Fun runs consisted of driving up and down the Fairfax County Parkway in the middle of the night, drinking in the back seat, and shooting bottle rockets onto the road from a tube braced against the passenger side view. Through the sunroof, our inebriates would shoot Roman candles. Chris knew how to gun the V at just the right moment so that when the skipping rocket exploded in the dark asphalt, we would plow right through it, showering our windshield with vibrant sparks. He could take an exit on a dime should the telltale flash of blue and red lights threaten to drown our reign of terror in entirely justified consequences. (laughs) He wasn't a, a classical driver. He was jazz. It was the laws he didn't obey that made him a virtuoso. Like... Like Werner Herzog's grizzly man, we eventually lost our advisable caution to the banality of habit. If, if you've seen Grizzly Man, you know how this analogy ends. Uh, one Saturday in April, a night like many before, five of us embarked on our oft-tread journey. It was a night of endings, our last trip that year to John's frat for one. For another, my friend Ryan would confide between his third and fourth beer that night that he hadn't been to class all semester and would definitely be expelled. And of course, the final voyage of the Flying V. What was different that night, I could not say. From my vantage in shotgun, Route 64 looked the same as ever, but something imperceptible must have shifted. Captain Rory's lunatic precision was short that crucial degree. That single inch between genius and madness was lost, and our vector shifted for the insidious reefs of the Virginia interstate system. Barely five minutes into the trip, Chris missed our exit. That is to say, a a landlubber would term it missed. That was it, I said, pointing four lanes over to the right as the fast-approaching off-ramp. I assumed we would take the next exit and circle round. A less courageous man than Captain Rory's might well have. That coward might have looked and quailed and not slammed the car impossibly sideways, perpendicular to all previous momentum, across three lanes of unseen traffic and into the exit lane, with only the damned chorus of backseat penitents screaming in horror to herald or trumpet his flight through a non-Euclidean rift in reality. (laughs) A man who believed in physics could not have made that exit. I swear it. His knowledge would have slowed him. His fear would have cut his hand and by it slain us all. Yet Captain Rory's made it with the same alacrity as a blind samurai splitting a reed. For what it's worth, he did use a turn signal. We could say nothing. None of us. Chris didn't notice. The only sound was the oblivious crooning of Ace of Bass on the iPod hookup. One song ended, another began. We were silent. Minutes passed and we cruised into Williamsburg. There was our turn on the right. There was us in the left lane. There was the speedometer somewhere between 50 and the speed of sound. (laughs) Wait, I thought. Don't tell him. We'll make a U-turn. I bit my tongue. Right here, said Brandon. No, I screamed. I'm sure I did. But our captain heard nothing over the roar of the ocean and the pound of his lion's heart. We made the turn. The flying V did not slow. It simply turned, as if caught on the hook of a monstrous unseen reel. She howled into the single-lane residential street. She struck the curb and bounced, and Ryan was thrown against his door, and then the door was gone, open, and Ryan was gone, out there, outside, by God, he was outside the car, all but his leg in his hand, clutching my seat as he flapped in the wind like a pennant. I turned to him and looked into the eyes of a man who knew he was about to die. (laughs) (laughs) And then... 
As Newton demands, he returned. The momentum of our ricocheting shuttle deposited him inside. The door slammed shut behind him. Whoa, said Chris. <laughs> the rest of the night is a blur. The specifics of its bacchanalia indiscernible from so many bloodshot brothers. Was it the night I got drunk and shaved all my pubic hair, or the night I got drunk and fell off a wall singing Chim Chimini Chim Chimini? Who can say? <laughs> it's unimportant. It's unimportant how we arrived home as we did. Some vital fuel had sparked its last. The next year I had friends with houses and friends with cars, and these things were vaccine to the wanderlust which had struck us as freshmen, almost struck us down. The age of the flying V was over, and she would fly no more. Well, really, what happened was Chris learned to fucking drive, and going to the mall with him didn't necessarily mean you were dry-humping the Grim Reaper anymore. <laughs> but with basic automotive skills, something was lost. That old red Volvo would forevermore be bound by the chains of terrestrial possibility. And while we would many times more venture to John's fret, they were magicless translations. Nevermore would they be blessed with the impossibility of mortal flight, or we ourselves with that same nobility, the doomed and desperate grace of the sea-tossed sailor, the proud and foolish crew of the Flying Bee. Thank you. That was Andrew Bentley with The Final Journey of the Flying V, a gigantic favorite in our year-end poll for good reason. Coming up next is a story from our Denver show, the first official stop on the tour, which really set the template for a lot of what I could expect on the road. One of the more joyous things to come out of that show was getting to meet the parents of a couple of our regulars. Longtime listeners will definitely recognize the names James and Faith D'Amato, both of whom have been featured on our year-end episodes before, uh, in Denver, I had the pleasure of inviting their mother, Kathy D'Amato, to our show, and fortunately for us, she accepted. And then, Kathy told an amazing story about her kids' generation and the change she sees coming in the world. As Mary Beth Smith said in her year-end nominations, uh, this is one cool mom. So here's Kathy D'Amato. I live in Denver, but my accent is from Boston. I haven't lived there in about 40 years. I can't shake it. My kids, on the other hand, have no accent. I joke and say they're not from anywhere. They have no roots. But they can do accents, and I'm jealous of their ability. It's one of the things that I'm proud about, an ability to do accents. My husband and I are both business majors. We studied accounting. We got well-paying jobs in public accounting when we graduated, and we graduated in a time of high unemployment, exploding gas prices, and crazy high inflation. Inflation was so high, our first mortgage was at about 14%. So the two accountants gave birth to two performers. And Cliff and I are shy people. I can barely talk at cocktail parties, never mind what I'm doing here. Cliff was the head of our retirement services company and dreaded those company-wide addresses. How in the world did we create these two kids? When Cliff retired, one thing he did was play in a charity golf tournament. The format was four amateurs playing with a golf pro. One day he played with Mike Weir, a pretty well-known Canadian golfer. Mike had a gallery of about 50 people following his game and it grew to 100 as the match neared the end. 
Now, many people who enjoy golf love to play, but don't want to play in front of strangers, even on something like a Saturday pickup game. And here is my husband playing in front of more and more people. Coming down to the final hole, he beat Mike Ware on that hole and played the best round of golf in his life to that point. The next day he was in a similar situation. There were grandstands around some of the greens, and they had some spectators, and Cliff's putting was amazing. That's when it dawned on me. He excelled in the spotlight. The performance gene comes from my husband's gene pool. Now I'm comfortable about my kids' pursuits, as dumb as they are. When James graduated college in 2010, there were few opportunities, especially for liberal arts majors. So we agreed to support his pursuit of improv comedy, which eventually led to his Overshare podcast. He was asked to develop a podcast which turned into One Shot. At that time, my husband was, begin was at the breaking point. The economy was getting better, jobs were a bit more available, and Cliff felt it was time to grow up. I saw that One Shot had a larger audience than Overshare, and it was growing. Role-playing games were something we never knew about. James had taken them up in college, so we weren't exposed to them. But I looked into it a teeny bit, and I came to this conclusion. If the market for RPGs was just a million people, and James somehow got everyone in the market to give him one dollar each, he'd be a millionaire. <laughs> I also said to Cliff that if someone had said to him, you could never make money in retirement services, his final job choice, said we wouldn't be where we are. Just because we don't understand RPGs doesn't make them a small business. Cliff conceded with a grumble for a short time, and then we watched James's business grow, and we were astounded. Faith, that other piece of work, is as crazy for pursuing acting. She was four when we lived in the suburbs of New York City. A family with a five-year-old girl, Anna, moved in behind us. Faith and Anna became fast friends with running between houses and numerous sleepovers. Well, Anna's dad was the beast on Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. When you live in New York, your neighbors can actually make a living in the theater. <laughs> well, we went to see a show and we got to go backstage and to see the costumes and the sets. Faith walked out on that empty stage with that singular lamp on it, gazed up into that empty house and thought, this is what I want to do. Oh my God, she was four years old and she hasn't changed her frickin' mind. After James's experience, we just had to say to Faith, why not? I am proud of her piecing together her unconventional life. I have now seen people succeed in unconventional ways, so I have not broken down to say, get a job. <laughs> in addition to their unconventional choices, my kids have given, given me hope for the future. They are the ones who are slowly changing my mind on how to consider things. 
When I grew up, there was such little diversity. Basically, you were Irish or Italian, and you were most definitely Catholic. I went to parochial school, but my parents wanted us to go to public high school before we went to Catholic college, so we could meet non-Irish Italians and non-Catholics. At college, we studied a trade like business, teaching, or nursing. There was no liberal arts in my family. My kids grew up in a more diverse world. Because they were not indoctrinated in Catholic school, they had a wider education and became very good thinkers. Some of the most capable business people I had met had a liberal arts background. So when my kids were looking at colleges, I felt comfortable with a liberal arts education instead of a trade education like I had. I knew they could go back to school if they needed it, but I wanted them to read, write, and think. As a result, they are adaptable and very open to new ideas and have taught me to be more open too. When I was growing up, there were no gay people at all. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> Now, gay marriage is legalized. Where did all these gay people come from? Obviously, out of nowhere. <laughs> It is the millennials that have changed that attitude. I thought I was progressive by working in the business world after graduation. But now I know how patriarchal the system remained. But millennials are changing that. When I grew up, sexual assault was a woman's fault. Now we're saying, huh, maybe the man has something to do with this situation. <laughs> And it is changing. Bill O'Reilly lost his job. We think Mike Pence is weak because he can't talk to a woman other than his wife. This is radical thinking for my baby boomer generation. But for millennials, it's the norm. I know we are living in dangerous, rocky times. War and nuclear war are possibilities. The uneven distribution of wealth is going to cause a social upheaval. Old norms are being torn down, and better norms are slowly developing. And I am hopeful in this tumult because millennials are politically active. So during this rocky time, do not despair. Please take action. Donate to the arts. If you listen to a podcast, toss them $2 a month <laughs> so that they can comfortably continue their work. If you listen to five podcasts, that's only $10 a month. Go to arts and crafts festivals. Buy some local arts. Do an art walk. Support Etsy. Go to a community play. Please take action by calling your representatives, both federal and local. Tell them what makes you happy and unhappy. Call them a lot, three to five times a week. You will get so good at this, you will end up taking very little time. Eventually, you may march for a cause. I've gone to some, and it's rewarding just to be a nose counted in the crowd. And vote. Please take action and vote, especially in your local elections. Doing so may change gerrymandering. 
Please take action by being kind and smiling to people you interact with daily. They will appreciate it, and you will feel good. The millennials are going to save us baby boomers from our own worst selves. And I am just tickled about that progress. Because of their efforts, everyone's road will be a little less rocky. Thanks. Thank you, Kathy DeMano. Give it up for Kathy, everybody. That was so great. Give it up for millennials. That's most of us, I think. Yeah. Moving on with our tour, we've got a couple stories with some really awesome twist endings. First, we're hitting up the Nerdist showroom at Meltdown Comics for a piece from Gary Anthony Williams, an incredibly talented man who you may recognize from the Boondocks or Malcolm in the Middle. Uh, Gary was recently one of the stars of the podcast Let's Get It On, which the Nerdalogs co-produced with our friend Gary Lucy. If you haven't heard it yet, it's available on nerdalogs.com and Apple Podcasts now, and it is super fun, so give that a listen. Uh, then, after Gary, we're up to San Francisco for our second mom of the trip and the episode. That piece comes from Debbie Mongan, mother to Shelby Mongan, and future mother-in-law to Chris Crotwell, two other speakers with many appearances on our year-end lists. The audio on this piece is a little shaky, given the venue where we recorded it, but Debbie's story was so good, and it deserves to be commemorated. But first, Gary Anthony Williams. Already... Like, he was pound for pound the most talented person in Los Angeles, probably. Then he lost, like, 150 pounds, which, like, concentrated all his brilliance even further. So we have no help. Uh, We'll never catch up. Uh, Victavius St. Valour himself, ladies and gentlemen, please be standing for Gary Anthony Williams. Thank you. I'm going to give this show such a hard out. It's going to be incredible. Uh, first of all, hi. Uh, I see some people I know. For you, those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm Gary Anthony Williams. I'm uh, raised in the South. I'm a Southern man. Uh, I'm from a little small town. By the way, sir, this is a true story. It's 100% true. A little bit more because I'm going to tell you some truth from my heart. Uh, and this mic will pick up both of my feelings. Uh, <laughs> I was raised in a small town called Fayetteville, Georgia. It was a dry county. That means they didn't sell booze there. It's about 45 minutes south of Atlanta, and it wasn't, like, progressive yet. It is now. You can interracially date there now. But then, <laughs> then they hadn't even invented gay people, really. And that, that's not a joke. Like, there really weren't any gay people in Fayetteville. In Atlanta, you can go there, and you can get, you can get gay all day long. But they didn't have them. In Fayetteville, yeah, and I had a lot of gay friends from Atlanta, and I loved lesbians, and I still do. I find something great about a lesbian. I want to be with them and sing and dance. (laughs) But I used to go to this dance club in Atlanta, 45 minutes away, called Weekends, and I would go with my buddy Jerry, who's straight, just like me, and... (laughs) And this is not a homophobic thing, sir. I'll kiss a man. I don't give a shit. This ain't about homophobia. This is the reality of my story. Uh, I go with my buddy Jerry and some lesbians who I won't name now. Maybe they'll be named later, but I won't name them now. And we would go to this dance club in Atlanta, but I would never tell my family because, you know, uh, we were black and we were super Southern. And my dad had been in World War II, so, you know, the government trained him to kill people. And I didn't know if he wanted me to hang out with gay people. I didn't want to ask him. Plus, we like slaughtered hogs and stuff, so he could kill. He could kill. So I didn't want to. 
I didn't want to talk to my dad about, hey, man, I'm going to the gay club. I'll see you later. So I just wasn't going to say anything. But every weekend, we would go up to weekends, and we would dance, and I would hang out with the lesbians, and it was the best time of my life. I still think I was raised by a pack of wild lesbians, and that's how I feel. <laughs> At this dance club weekend, uh, they had this cage where people would dance, sexy people would dance in this cage. And there's one dude, he would dance in there, and he was like, he hardly wore any clothes, but he was always nice, and he always waved, hey, there's the fat guy with the lesbians. I was a fag hack, but I didn't know. In a good way, ma'am. Uh, so, but, you know, so we go dancing, and we go dancing every weekend up there. And one night, it was about 4 a.m., because in Atlanta, clubs close late. And like, oh, it's time to leave the gay dance club and go back home. And I'm with my buddy Jerry and two lesbians who shall be named later. Uh, and I was like, Jerry, you got the keys? No, man, I ain't got, I ain't got no keys. You drove the car. Hey, hey, other lesbians, you got the keys? No, Gary, we're lesbians. We don't have keys. So I go out to my car, and I had securely locked my keys inside the car. Now, I could have called my daddy and said, hey, daddy, will you come pick me up? But I know he knows how to kill stuff, and I don't know, I don't know if I'm one of those things that he might want to kill. So, but it's 4 a.m., and I can hear the night birds singing. But I was like, oh, if we wait three more hours, it's going to be 7 a.m. And, like, it looks gay in this parking lot now. It might look straight, and Daddy will come and pick us up. <laughs> so we're, we're yeah, that's it, ma'am. That's how it was. This was Fayetteville, Georgia. Uh, so I thought we can wait three hours, and we just passed some time. By One way we passed times was one of the girls had just split up with a girlfriend, and she had a wedding band. So I put it on the antenna of my uh, Malibu Classic about halfway. Then I would flick it, ding 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 ding, and the wedding band would go ding 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 ding. It would keep falling down, ding 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 ding, and make this cool sound, ding 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 ding, as it fell down the antenna on the car. Till I flipped it off in the weeds, and then I lost her wedding band. <laughs> and she wasn't mad. She actually said, "You know, it wasn't a good relationship, anyways." <laughs> Which is that's why I like lesbians. They're cool like that. They don't care if you throw their wedding bands away. So it, the sun is finally starting to come up, and I was like, okay, it's probably time for us to go find a payphone and call my dad. But then out of the door comes the gay guy that I see dancing in the cage all the time. And he's like, what are you doing here, man? You guys should be gone. Like, it was morning now. And I said, yeah, I locked my keys, and then my daddy, and he shoots hogs. And, <laughs> and he was like, hey, dude, it's okay. And then he takes, he had one of his outfits on a wire hanger, and he takes it, and he, he unlocks uh, my car door with some stealth, as I suppose at that time only a transvestite could do. I didn't know. I thought, maybe that's their superpower. And he unlocks the door, and I'm like, thank you so much. Good luck to you. He's about to go to Europe and do this big show. I was like, thank you so much, man. He's like, yeah, yeah, you're welcome, you're welcome. And that was it. That was that story. But here's the important thing. He was a DJ there. He was a DJ a dancer, and a singer. And more important than that, and this is 104% true, the guy who saved me from having to tell my dad that I was just hanging out with gay people every weekend was none other than America's RuPaul. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Gary Anthony Williams, everybody. Please welcome Debbie Mongan. Shelby, welcome your mom. Well, I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed now because I thought I was going to get to make history by being the first 
two generations in a family telling your stories. It was only three days apart, so you're close. All right, good. Well, kudos to them. So um, I live about 40 minutes south of the city and um, in what's called Moss Beach. There you go. I live in Moss Beach, which is uh, from when you're leaving the city, you're going south towards Santa Cruz, Half Moon Bay, all those places. It's beautiful. But what I want to tell you about is how I got here. I just got here in September. And I'm from the East Coast. So keeping with the theme, I wanted to tell you how Indiana and Chicago formed the gateway that got me out here. So about a year ago, I find myself in my life in a shithole apartment in southern Indiana, almost on the Kentucky border. And that's a whole other story in itself that I'll tell you some other time, but it was hell on earth. Um, anyway, I'm thinking I'm going to move to Chicago. My daughter lives in Chicago. I have a brother in Chicago. It'll be great. I'm going to just move to Chicago. I love the city. Now, I have another brother that lives out here. And he calls and he says, Sis, you're an old hippie. The coast is full of old hippies. You would love it here so much. You need to move here, not Chicago. So I thought about it for a few minutes. And he's like, you know, you and your spiritually unicorns and butterflies and rainbows, you'll love it out here because there's a lot of you guys out here. So I said, well, I don't want to commit, but I will come out for a couple of months and we'll decide once I get there. So in the meantime, I have an apartment full of stuff in Indiana. So I decide I'm just going to put it in storage in Chicago near my family until I make up my mind what I'm doing with the rest of my life and what I do when I grow up. So I rent a truck in Indiana, a Penske truck, beautiful yellow truck, blue and a white stripe on the side. We've all seen them. And when I pick it up, the lady tells me, you're so lucky. It's, it's brand new. It only has 2,000 miles on it. Now, immediately, this did not make me feel lucky. This made me terrified. I don't want to put the first scratch on this truck. I don't want to do something to this, even with insurance. I don't want to get, you know, paid for something that I've done to it. So I was very cautious with this truck. Also, it was 16-foot truck. Huge. No reason to have a 16-foot truck because I have an 8-foot van worth of belongings. So I still don't know why I got that giant truck. So I pull it in my driveway in Indiana. I stick my stuff in the corner because I didn't need all that space. And I drive the truck to Chicago. And I get into the city, and my daughter lives on the south side in the city of Chicago with my big-ass brand-new rental moving truck. And we have to figure out, where am I parking it for the night? So we're standing there discussing it on the parking in on the sidewalk. <clears throat> and unicorn goes down the street. And I was like, oh, what? And I look across the street, and there's an alley that's empty, all but a food truck on one side against the fence. I'm like, there you go. It always works. The hippie living in the moment, my spirit, it, the <laughs> universe is taking care of me. So I go around the block, and I just tuck that big-ass rental brand spanking new truck in behind the food truck, and I'm golden. We go to bed. Everything's good. The next morning, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to drive this truck to the suburbs and put my stuff in storage and return it at the Home Depot in Elmhurst, Illinois. 
So we get up and we go down the next morning and Shelby and I are looking at the alley and somewhere between us going upstairs the night before and coming down, 72 cars decided to park in the alley as well. So the entire other side of the alley is cars. Behind the big ass brand new rental truck is cars. In front of the food truck is car cars everywhere. And we looked at it and we kind of assessed the situation and decided it's not physically possible. You're not getting the truck out of there. But mom likes a good challenge. And mom's aware of the unicorns and the butterflies and the rainbows. I'm like, I can do this. Just let me try. So I get in the truck and for more than 30 minutes, I inched back and forth until I found myself smack in the middle of the alley. And Shelby's on the sidewalk, kind of helping and watching. And I find, and I'm so proud of myself. Like, I just want to call WGN. I want someone to document that I actually did this. So I assess the situation. I'm sitting in the driver's seat. On the, on the driver's side, I look, and between the truck and the cars, there's about six inches. I'm not exaggerating. Six inches. I look on the other side, and between the truck and the food truck that I was behind, there's about four inches. I'm not exaggerating, four inches. But in my head, I think, I got inches. All I need to do is move forward slowly, and I'm out of this alley, and I am an amazing human being. So I start moving forward, and I get about 10 feet, and my beautiful daughter's face contorts and morphs into this horrific, terrified expression that I've never seen before. So, er, you know, I stop and I roll down the window and I'm like, Shelby, what the fuck is that face? And she's, at this point, can't use words. Like, she's trying, but she manages to convey to me that the top of the rental truck is tilting about five inches. So if anybody's done the math, yeah, four inches on the side of me. So the top of the food truck is now doing a can opener kind of maneuver all the way along this brand spanking new rental truck that I'm terrified to scratch. So I stop and I think, and I'm like, well, I'm committed to this, so I don't have any choice, and I need to get the hell out of this alley, so I just go the rest of the way and can't open her all the way down the side of it. Get out to the suburbs, empty the truck, I take it to the Home Depot and I park it in the parking lot, flip it off, run inside and hand the guy my paperwork and he says, well, I gotta go outside and inspect. At which point I crossed myself and my fingers and I waited and he came in and he signs off and hands me papers and said, have a great, have a great day. Did he not see? I don't even know, but I don't care at this point. I just want to get the hell out of there and leave that truck. So I run out of the Home Depot like I stole a screwdriver, and I jump in my brother's car, and I'm like, get us out of here. So we speed away, and I leave this rental truck that's been the bane of my existence in the parking lot of Home Depot in Elmhurst, Illinois. This is a, a, a suburb of Chicago, Illinois, if you're taking notes. That's important I fly out here, that's the end of that part of the journey. So I fly out and I get here and I'm, I'm here for about six, eight weeks and I love it. I'm 
definitely here forever. Um, he's right. There's so many unicorns and butterflies on the coast. It's crazy, and I'm happy, and I'm in my element, and I'm going to be here forever. So I love it. So one morning, I'm sitting on my porch having coffee, and I have an eight-foot wooden fence, so I can't really see what's going on out in the street. But, you know, I'm thinking, and I'm pondering, and yeah, this is where I want to be. I'm going to stay here forever. I just need to get my stuff from Chicago to here, from Elmhurst to here. And as I'm having that thought, I my hand to God. I look up, and above my eight-foot fence, very slowly along my street, is this bright yellow truck with a white stripe and a blue stripe that's scraped like a can opener stripe down the middle of the blue stripe. I left that truck in a parking lot in Elmhurst, Illinois, eight weeks before that. And now I'm watching it drive down my street in Moss Beach, California. Now, everyone in this room has used the expression, it blew my mind. Fuck you. You don't know what that means. Because I felt my mind shifting around in my head. So, and even thinking about it now, I get worked up. Like, what the odds? I mean, can you even calculate the odds of something like that happening? As I'm thinking, but I need to get my stuff here. So I'm, I'm totally open to theories because I do believe that there's signs and the universe is doing that. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm the hippie. And, but so I run out, it's outside, and I run across the street. And I'm sure the neighbors thought I'd lost my mind. And I'm like, oh, I ran out this truck. And I'm like trying to explain the story to them. And the husband's like, yeah, I noticed it had um, Indiana plates. Like, you guys are not appreciating the gravity of the situation and the depth of the, the, what's going on here. But fine, but, you know, it affected me. So some theories I've come up with are, you know, just reality is not what we think. And, and things that you think could never happen, astronomical odds of something that could never, ever happen, my God, they can, and they do every day, and it did to me. And, and I still, you know, a couple months later, six months later, I'm affected by even remembering this story, and it was amazing. But I will tell you that the biggest regret that I have of the whole thing, when I look back, why didn't I leave my shit in it and let them bring it to me? So anything can happen. Okay, one more story for y'all. This comes from our Minneapolis show, the final one of the trip, that literally no one attended but myself and the other performers. And yet the stories there shined. One of them, from Andrew Friedman, was represented on last week's Best of episode. And here's another piece from that night, featuring Chicago expat Brad Einstein with a really great story about some travels of his own. After Brad, we're closing with a song from that show, an audio reunion between myself and Claire Friedman. Now you might remember that Claire and Brad moved to New York City at the end of last year, as it happens, though, my tour intersected with their being in Minneapolis on a cross-country trip of their own. What magical timing. We didn't even need an audience. Um, before we close out, I also want to say, man, this tour was pretty amazing for me. I can't really imagine ever having the chance to do something like this again, and I'm so glad I took the opportunity while it was out there. I hope you all enjoyed following along, and if you didn't, well, you have this condensed hour-long episode for your listening pleasure instead. Either way, thanks for your support. And even though it was a tough year, 
I hope you got to enjoy at least a little bit of where 2017 took you as well. Great. So this is about two across two America. Um, and I have been across many a state, seen many a beautiful thing, but one state holds the record for me of just the most fucked up life occurrences uh, just in one place, and that is the state of Iowa. And um, I just want to let you guys know that I am foregoing a story about smoking dope with a man who uh, tamed wild turkeys and all of his best friends died in a skydiving accident. That's not the story that I'm going to tell. Also, that happened on the corner of Girl Scout and Gun Club Roads, which is a place that exists in (laughs) Iowa. Uh, Rather, I'm going to talk about a um, wedding that I went to some moons ago, and to give you an idea of what I was expecting, I was going to the wedding of a family friend who at the time was the personal assistant to Christopher Nolan, most popular (laughs) at the time for the dark night. So I was like, hell yeah, this is going to be glitz. This is going to be glamour. This is going to be a motherfucking Hollywood. I'm going to meet... I'm going to... Who knows? I'm going to meet maybe maybe not Heath Ledger, but at least the dude who put on, like, the smile, and he's going to tell me some crazy stories. Uh, it's going to be fantastic. And then we get to O'Hare, and then we get to... I don't know... Des Moines, is that in Iowa? And then we just drive, and we keep driving, and maybe people in the West recognize this, maybe people in the East don't have this experience, but in Iowa, at some point, roads stop having names, and they just have numbers, and I found out later in that trip that uh, the roads have numbers because they used to have no numbers. <laughs> and then 9-11 happened, and then they passed a law where they said, every road, we need to be able to get to every road. So they just slapped on numbers. So, like, you'll have, like, road 234, which was the only one that I remember. So we were in the country where we were in road 234. And let me tell you about the towns that live on road 234. Um, this is... The first 9-11 reference out of two. Um, so we, we get there, and, and, and keep in mind, there, there are two what they call towns and what you might call just the uh, why Trump won, uh, just the gutted remnants of a town that once existed. There's just, like, not, not, there's, like, no... It's just, like, uh, population 2,000... Uh, tumbleweeds uh, and no humans to, to speak of. Uh, there was one restaurant for two towns and we ate there numerous times on the weekend that I was there and the, and the most notable thing about the restaurant was when you walked in there was a giant framed picture of the Twin Towers and super uh, imposed in front of it, like not photoshopped, like closer to MS painting. <laughs> Uh, on top of the Twin Towers in the lower left-hand corner was just a pixelated baby wrapped in an American flag with no other context. Uh, 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 and, and um, yeah, we ate there numerous times. We stayed 
at a bed and breakfast that was run by two very nice people, and I hope what I'm about to say doesn't come off as disparaging, but uh, three facts that you would, uh, that were very true of this place was, one, uh, of course this bed and breakfast was haunted. <laughs> two, of course their daughter could and did speak to all the ghosts. Because three, of course their daughter had Down syndrome. Which oh, no. is not a, like, it's hard, like, I frame that as a joke and I, like, I'm, I really don't mean to disparage anyone's mental state. It's just like, fuck, of course this is the situation we're about to walk into. Thankfully, this is, fuck, like, I feel like everyone's like, he, I, I don't mean, the ghosts weren't there because she wasn't there because she was running track at a, at a, like a Special Olympics event. So thankfully we did not have to deal with any of the ghosts because they apparently followed the daughter around. If you have a problem with any of that, blame it on the parents. I'm just telling you what I... What I um, so needless to say, at this point, you're like, damn, you would probably need a drink. Yes, you would need to have a drink. Unfortunately, there was not a liquor store in this town. Why? I will answer you. Because the woman who ran the liquor store in the town died. <laughs> and instead of someone else starting up a new liquor store, everyone just started making their own liquor. <laughs> uh, how do I know this? I will happily tell you. Uh, the, the wedding party put, up, put some situations together like, so hey, during the day, if you all want to do something... One was like a nice high tee where everyone could wear a fancy hat, but because it was kind of split down gender lines, I went with all the guys to the shooting range, uh, at which point the father of the bride started showing off the homemade gun that he made from scratch, which was a pistol that... Sh <laughs> there was a pistol that you had to... Put on a sandbag and hold your shooting wrist with your other hand because it shot sniper rifle caliber bullets out of a homemade pistol. And uh, when we were there, I met this dude with no front teeth who was just bitching about the weed-smoking libertarians in the town over who, uh, for fun, would just dig a hole in the ground, stuff gunpowder into the hole put a bowling ball in the gunpowder, light the gunpowder, and just, like, the bowling ball would shoot out, <laughs> and then they wouldn't know where it went. The point was just having the bowling ball. Anyway, he was complaining about those guys because he found a bowling ball on his fucking property. And then was like, hey, y'all want to come and drink my whiskey? And I was like, yes! But my dad was also like, yes. But then my mom texted us, and we couldn't go. Um, but, uh... One of the more deeply unsettling uh, uh, moments uh, was uh, one of the other attractions in town was there was a uh, like general store kind of thing where you could buy a lot of like uh, little things like little Iowa shot glasses. You could buy a uh, a, uh, a camo a camo hat with a Jesus fish on it. That that sort of thing. And upstairs. Was a bunch of uh, was it was the entire floor was dedicated to a model train set, 
and uh, we were looking at it. It was pretty impressive, like a giant model train set, very impressive. And then I just hear from behind me is a, is a gentleman, uh, his voice, and he says, you want to see something cool? <laughs> and the answer to do you want to see something cool should always be no, because you, <laughs> like, I don't think any, you ever really want to see something cool. But then that, the gentleman leads me to... <coughs> Sorry. Uh, oh, that was a graphic sneeze on my part. Uh, gentleman leads me to an area that is a built-up town. So the, the, the train chug and chug and choo-choo's through the ch- town. And he points... Ah! Oh, oh, I didn't sneeze. I just went, ah, what the fuck is going on? Okay, anyway, so he points out this uh, building... Which is a tiny building. It's like a doll. It's smaller than a dollhouse building. And he's like, look in that window. And I and I look into the window, and it's a well-apportioned office. But in the office are two tiny die-cast naked people, and they're graphically fucking. <laughs> and and I, I'm looking at like like they are just fucking on this tiny desk and and I'm looking at and I'm looking at them and then I look at him and he's just nodding and smiling to me and I'm looking back at it and I realize that this man I've never met before spent hours detailing these people's naked bodies like painting them like they had nipples and it was upsetting uh, this story really doesn't have an ending, other than uh, I really recommend just for you to understand America is just drive to Iowa until you hit where the streets only have numbers, and then you know you might discover not just diecast naked people, but maybe a little bit of yourself. <laughs> I'm gonna. I think I landed that. I think I landed that. I think I landed that, guys. doesn't say the streets don't have numbers. Yeah, yeah. The streets have no names. Yeah, but no they, numbers are fine. They have numbers. Yeah. So no Chris Nolan. No, oh my God! I didn't even get that. There was no Christopher Nolan. He didn't show up. It was a beautiful ceremony. It turned out <laughs> the town had like one of those empty buildings turned out to be a really cool wedding venue. Oh shit. Uh, it was really cool. The people who got married are really fantastic, and it was to this day the best vacation my family had together. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was fantastic. Me and Claire are gonna do a song that we have done prior, and it it's really good. It's kind of like an Eric and Claire classic, and it was in my head the whole time. I'm also stealing this from your farewell show. Oh.
This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.